Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria on the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn, every Tuesday from approximately 12 to 12.45. Today, Jack, we are coming exactly 12. 12 on the dot. Which does not happen. No. Uh, unfortunately, we are not joined in the studio today with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. She is taking my place at the Buki Trade Show in Florida, Orlando, Orlando, Orlando. <laughs> yeah. So she's, uh, she's down there, uh, rotovapping um, scotch in, uh, in a rotary evaporator, and then taking the leftover oak and uh, making ice cream with it. And I'm assuming taking the, uh, the, you know, the clear scotch, the, uh, we call it you know, Grey Dog, the one that's been, uh, t- had the oak taken out of it in the rotovap. I'm sure she's just drinking that to drown her sorrows, right? I mean, she's not a, hey, no offense to Florida, she's not an Orlando fan. Let me just put it that way. She's not happy to be taking my place in Orlando. But eventually today in the audience, uh, in the uh, studio rather, we're going to have Tony Conigliaro. And since nobody can pronounce his name, which I, I think means rabbit keeper in Italian, uh, they just call him Tony C. But Tony C it, uh, runs you know, one of my absolute most favorite bars in the whole world, uh, 69 Colebrook Row uh, in London. Fantastic bar. He has a, a, you know, a laboratory as well where he does a lot of really high uh, you know, cutting-edge work uh, in cocktails and was uh, one of the cocktail bars where I first experienced uh, you know, the fact that you could use very high-end, uh, very high-end stuff in a very comfortable, wonderful atmosphere. And so Tony should be here in a minute, but he uh, is, as many guests have been, uh, trapped somewhere in Brooklyn and does not know how to get to Roberta's. That it happens, man. It does. It does. He left, like, he was in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, headed here, <laughs> started like half hour ago, and has not yet made it. Amazing. Anyway, uh, calling all your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Two eight. It's kind of sad not having Nastasha here, right? Yeah, yeah. I can do my best. I can, you know, yeah? make some faces and stuff. I know, but I can hardly you even can see, see your him, face. Yeah. Somebody needs to sit across from you at that table and make faces, right? Preferably someone like Nastasha who has like a, a peculiar knack for getting me angry, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. Anyway, while we're waiting for questions to come in, uh, we have a question from. Oh, this is last week's question that we didn't get to from uh, Lee Kalman. And by the way, my kids ran my battery dry on my iPad, so I'm actually doing this uh, this show via my iPhone. And uh, in case you didn't know, I'm getting a little old, so it's hard for me to read these tiny, tiny letters. Anyway, hey guys, love the show. Got my hands on three fresh lamb hearts. Well, since this question is from last week, I doubt the lamb hearts are fresh anymore. You know what I mean, Jack? Uh. I trimmed the first one into medallions and simply grilled it with salt and pepper. Uh, it was delicious. The second, I also trimmed in medallions and cooked at low temperature for 56 Celsius, at 56 Celsius rather, for three hours. And it also had, it was delicious, but it had a very similar texture to the first attempt. Wondering how I might get it a bit more tender on the third heart, perhaps another hour or two of cooking. Or since it's relatively lean cut, is there nothing really to break down? What would you do? Well, Lee, uh, I love heart. I haven't done a lot of work with uh, low temperature cooking on heart, uh, but you know the way that you did it first, which is you know really grilled quickly with like a char on the outside where it remains chewy on the inside, is 
to me, my favorite on almost any kind of heart. You know, like chicken hearts, there's nothing, there's nothing quite like a grilled uh, chicken heart. It, like, if I could grow chickens that just had hearts and skin, that I would do that. I mean, I love chicken meat, but chicken hearts and chicken skins are, are incredible. But I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's relatively, not only is it relatively lean, but uh, I believe... And I did some research into it. I believe most of the, uh, the, you know, muscle, heart muscle isn't necessarily connective tissue like it would be in something like a gizzard or something like that, which gets very soft with prolonged cooking. Uh, heart is mainly just really strong muscle. And so I don't know that it's going to break down the same way uh, as um, – you know, a cut with a lot of collagen in it would with prolonged cooking. I'm not saying it won't. I mean, you know, you could try a couple of days and see because it, actually you, you, it would work. If you cooked it for a long, long time, it would work, you know, because you can tell even with very uh, lean cuts, uh, they get tender if they're cooked for a long time, but it's not really a pleasing tenderness. It's more of a, a mushiness. So I don't know if you're going to be able to get um, – I don't know if you're going to be able to get exactly what you're looking at uh, with that, but I did find an article called uh, Studies on Development of Tenderized Chicken Gizzard and Goat Heart Pickles. Uh, this is uh, in 2009. It's uh, A.K. Mighty is the, uh, is the author. It's an awesome name, Mighty. Uh, anyway, uh, they're studying uh, traditional Indian uh, heart uh, and gizzard pickles, and uh, they did something very smart. They they sliced it relatively thin. They jacarded the meat somewhat to get penetration, and then they brined it in a meat tenderizer. They were using a variety of natural tenderizers. Um, for instance, ginger uh, apparently has some tenderizing agents and enzyme agents in tenderizing. They are also using the late not figs themselves, but the latex from a papaya uh, from fig uh, plant uh, or tree and, uh, a, a weird, uh, bitter gourd extract that you can't get here in, uh, in the U S to, to try it out. And, uh, they had very good luck, uh, tenderizing it that way. So you, you could try, you could try that. Uh, and then I read some other, uh, articles online, although I haven't done it using a uh, baking soda actually as a tenderizer, presumably the lye, the alkaline nature breaks down the protein structure somewhat and causes it to bind less strongly to each other and makes it, uh, more tender. Uh, but that that, uh, but now I want to try these pickled, these pickled goat hearts. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you just chow down on a, on a jar of pickled goat hearts, Jack? I would, yeah. I mean, I'd never considered that before. Why don't you get, uh, get Patrick to order us up some goat hearts? I, I mean, I have the procedure right here. I mean, it's, it's pretty dang mm. simple. They, they give you the whole thing. I think October was goat season for him, but I don't know if he's getting more. <laughs> yeah, but is it goat heart season? I mean, these are, yeah, right. Well, if he if he pickled them, we should be able to have them, you know, all year all year long. That's right. Uh, also, uh, another way to tenderize meat that you might not want to do is uh, ionizing radiation at high sterilizing doses of uh, uh, high 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 sterilizing and radiating doses cause changes in meat proteins, resulted in increased tenderness. And God knows what else. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say that's stupid. But like, uh, for many years, people um, were against the irradiation of uh, fruits, vegetables, and meats because they saw, thought that somehow the 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 food was going to glow in the dark. And so, there's a whole group of people that are anti-irradiated foods. To me, the only real argument against uh, irradiating foods is if the if the actual uh, irradiation source is unsafe to the workers, unsafe to the environment, which I don't know if they are or not. Uh, and B, does the crap taste good or not? You know, and um, so that's how they did that glow in the dark sushi. 
No, no, no. That's like that. I, I don't really know. I researched that once for a very short amount of time. That's like a bioluminescent protein. Yeah. I mean, the one that like you see Ferran eating the popsicle and yeah. his tongue is glowing. Yeah. yeah, that's a bioluminescent protein. When you when you irradiate food, I mean, there's not. I mean, all the studies that I've read, and they're all old because they were trying to use basically the byproducts of all sorts of awful tests and things that they were doing. But um, you know, basically, there's no uh, residual radiation uh, left in the food. But one of the issues is you'll get a textural degradation of the food. Uh, uh, over time as it's irradiated. It's the same problem that some people have with um, very, very high pressure, high hydrostatic pressure, uh, <clears throat> sterilization, things like oysters. Uh, they say that there's textural changes, and it usually means that you've in, broken the stuff down somewhat, so this can either be seen as a positive or a negative. I mean, one person's tenderness is another person's mushiness. Me, personally, uh, I like meat... I like to taste the muscle, uh, the fiber structure. I like it to be tender, but I like the structure to be intact. When that structure starts getting broken down, such as something that is naturally kind of chewy becomes tender, to me, uh, to me, that's mush. If all you're doing is breaking down collagen, and the collagen breaks down, but the muscle fibers are still intact, that's tender to me. Um, so uh, to me, it's a, it's a fine line. Anyway. We've got a caller. Oh, caller, you are on the air. <laughs> Hi, Dave. Uh, big fan of the show and what you guys are doing. I have uh, a science question and a recipe question for you. Go ahead. Uh, science question is, uh, so my father is diabetic and tries to treat exclusively with diet. Uh, so it's foregone dessert, but uh, was thinking of trying to do uh, meringues for him. And uh, you've talked a lot about how the importance of sugar, not just as a sweetener, but as a, a structural uh, component. And I was curious if you have thoughts on... Uh, meringues with uh, without sugar and just the sugar alcohols. I know erythritol has gotten a lot of press. Um, if you have thoughts on that dimension, uh, well, that's interesting. I haven't specifically done it. I mean, I, I, the, the one we always keep around is isomalt. And uh, I'm trying to think if I've ever made a meringue with ice. I guarantee you, a meringue with isomalt would work. It just won't be as sweet. Do you know what I mean? So you'd have to. Um, uh, I, I don't have a lot of experience uh, doing one-to-one sugar replacements, i.e. trying to keep stuff sweet. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. I have much more experience trying to get the textural properties of sugar without the sweetness. So I'll use things like glucose um, uh, syrups, and uh, or if I want something harder that's going to have a lot more of a gelling property, I'll use uh, isomalt. So <clears throat> uh, which is the one you mentioned? I forget. Uh, erythritol. And does it have similar sweetness properties to uh, sugar? Uh, it, it, it does. It's, uh, it's a sugar alcohol that uh, the body doesn't break down, and it doesn't have a lot of the nasty uh, gut properties that a lot of other sugar alcohols have. Uh, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, sugar alcohols are generally undigestible, and so they add to what you would consider your bulk fiber content. So they can cause, uh, what's a nice word, flatulence and, and runniness. It's whatnot. Uh, is, that a, is that a polite way of putting it, you think? I, I think that was delicate, yes. Yeah. So, uh, so <clears throat> if it has similar sweetness properties, I mean, the great thing about isomalt, aside from uh, the fact that it's not sweet, which I like, is that it's, uh, it doesn't pull a lot of moisture out of the air, and so it uh, maintains its structure for a long time. Um, and I don't know the properties of the other sugar alcohols, but it, I mean, look, I know isomalt works, so I'm sure the other sugar alcohols, assuming that they don't pull too much water out of the air and turn to a soupy mess, would work as well. Do you know what I mean? Oh, great. Okay, I'll start experimenting. Can you do me a favor and uh, send, send us a note and tell us how it worked out for you? 
I, I certainly will. Right. So a, a, a recipe question, if, if you don't mind. Uh, so I'm among the Legion throng that have decided to hack together our own immersion circulators, and it's been really fun to play with. Uh, I had fun trying to do head-to-head recipe comparisons, where you start with very similar base ingredients just to show off the effects to skeptical friends. Uh, chicken worked well, did a buttermilk marinated chicken and uh, either a high heat roast or a slow cook with a flash fry. And it was a lot of fun to sort of compare and contrast the different effects, how the marinade took, etc. I was curious if you have uh, other suggestions of, uh, you know, recipes or ingredients where you can do uh, a really nice comparison that's scientific. You start with the same ingredients uh, and show off the power of uh, slow cooking. I mean, strictly speaking, slow cook versus normal cook? Uh, slow cook versus normal cook, or just the fun that you can do with uh, low-temp food? I mean, the cheapest and easiest thing to do, and it's not, I mean, it depends. It's impressive if you haven't done it before for someone. Obviously, it's eggs. You know, mm-hmm. sh- show, yeah. showing someone an egg at 63 versus 62 sure. versus 64, people are like, mm-hmm. oh, I get it. That's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. Steaks are, are are a good one to show kind of equal done equal doneness uh, all the way through. Obviously, here's one that's interesting. It's not better or worse, but like a very like a slow cook uh, on a short rib. Some people prefer most. You know, m- m- like if you tell someone that it's um, if you tell someone that it's the same thing as a braised short rib, then they, generally they like the braised short rib better. If you just tell them here's like a really cool cut of meat, in general people really like the long cooked things like short ribs because they have an intense meaty flavor and they cut mm-hmm. they cut tender like a steak. So uh, a short rib that's cooked for 24 hours at let's say 50 uh, at like 57 to 60 C is going to have the texture of a skirt steak, which is pretty amazing for people. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or cooked for 24 to 36 hours is going to have more of a tender steak texture. People kind of like that as a comparison. And it's interesting to compare that side by side with the traditional braise because they're totally different. Not better, not sure. worse, different. Um, fun. Yeah, but give, give those, a, give those a, a shot. All right. Thanks All right. so much and keep it up. Thank you. Tony C. Tony the Rabbit Man. Tony Canigliaro <laughs> is in the studio. <laughs> Hello. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? Had trouble getting here, huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah? Uh, all right. So I described you uh, a little bit uh, to the audience as, uh, I don't know what I said. I said, uh, fantastic bartender, drinks factory lab, uh, 69 Colebrook Row. What's the name of the hotel bar again? Uh, Zessa Townhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently also awesome. Bastard. Yeah, you've not seen it yet, have you? Yeah. Huh? yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so uh, we actually had a question in uh, for you know you and I to talk about cocktails, and then uh, after that, I think we'll go to a commercial break and bang out some stuff. Hold on a second, Nastasia, who's not here today because she's in Florida, uh, tweeted it out yesterday, so we got in a good question for you. Uh, okay, uh, this is from uh, Kevin for us. Uh, hope you and Dave are doing well. Uh, I've really been enjoying the last few shows. I just saw you have Tony C. on today, so I had some cocktail questions to send your way. What are your thoughts on the binary interactions of taste combinations? I've read a few papers that essentially say that sodium in both uh, sodium chloride and uh, MSG suppress bitterness, sugar, and acid uh, and cancel and, – and, and, wait, uh, suppress bitterness and sugar and acid cancel each other out, etc. Do you have any methodical approaches to adding small amounts of flavors to find the perfect balance or do you have a standard ratio you apply? How do you know how much salt to add to a cocktail huh that's a perfect question for you tony yeah let me just bounce that around in my head for a few seconds um 
I think at the end of the day you can read papers and you can you can look at lots of sheep. It's how it works in your mouth. And you've got to keep trying and trying. I mean, when we're kind of making cocktails and we're, we're kind of working on stuff, you know, we it's almost like a, a, an artist has a blank canvas. Until you've kind of put something on that canvas, then you don't know what else is going to happen on there. Uh, so we kind of guesstimate sometimes off some of the, you know, kind of literature we read and then kind of work it up and down until we get the perfect formula that kind of can involve like making uh, a drink or a, you know a, a mix um you know up to 30 40 times until we've got that exact kind of resonance that we want in our mouths uh, and that we think will work once we give it to a large, larger audience um so i think a lot of these kind of papers just Vague, use them as vague guidelines. I don't right. think you can ever, ever say that will work universally until you've actually kind of tried how it reacts with all the other ingredients. Right. I mean, I'm sure you have like a go to starting point. For those of you that don't know Tony, like if you walk into his, I don't know if they, he still does this, but if you walk in when they're actually doing testing, uh, they'll have uh, various and Tony is a, is, I mean, I'm putting words in his mouth. He's right here. He can talk for himself, but a big proponent of um, sub threshold. Uh, you know, modifiers like salt and other other flavors like that that you wouldn't necessarily be able to pick out. In fact, he doesn't want you to pick them out, but they're there to kind of round and punch flavors up and down. And I remember one time I visited his bar, and they were working with I forget what the particular ingredient was, but they were uh, the the eventual cocktail was going to have a, a fairly small amount, and so they were trying to figure out what their mix was going to be. Uh, you know, that was going to I guess I don't know whether you work out of bitters bottles or what, but they were using a micro pipetter yeah. to basically make a bunch of iterations with very small differences in particular components that would then and, and they're not going to pull out a micro pipetter at the bar, but they, it's to help them figure out what their uh, base is going to be to work with when they're actually behind the bar. So that's something you still do it. Yeah, I mean, I think that that experiment there was <clears throat> something that ended up in uh, the dry martini that we did, which was to make a dry martini drier. Uh, and rather than it kind of being a flavour, it was an effect, which, which was using kind of uh, uh, condensed tannins that we got from grape seeds. So we kind of macerated them, then rotivated them off. So they were very, very concentrated. And you could have like, you know, 10 uh, microns per litre of vermouth. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, per liters of vermouth that would have an effect even when you put it in a drink uh, and we use micro pipettas for that uh, and you know we kind of started fairly high I mean I think we started around 50 and even adding 50 microns to uh, a bottle of vermouth and then making a martini with it dried you know it puckered your mouth up so much that it didn't work so we kind of you know it, it, again it's just trying and then seeing where these things would go because <clears throat> You know, sometimes these papers are kind of, you know, uh, uh, use pre-made chemicals and whatever else that you buy from laboratories. Uh, the difference with that, um, I suppose, kind of what we do, we're kind of a bit more fast and loose in as far as we're making these ingredients ourselves. So, you know, we can't test the amount of kind of tannins in something by ourselves. So the register is basically in our mouths, which I think it always should be anyway. I mean, that's the most important instrument. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the most accurate anyway. Yeah, and it's, it's what we're mixing for. We're mixing yeah. for the mouth, not for the HPLC machine. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, <laughs> Well, the mouth and the nose, I guess, and the yeah. eyes. But we're mixing for the human being. For the human being. Yeah. Uh, you Clever know, like instrument, a, that one. Just, what? Clever instrument, that one. Exactly. Yeah, pretty good. Sometimes. Works. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, I know at the bar, 
uh, one thing we we tend to add. Uh, I mean, look, obviously we have uh, go to ratios of acids. We all have our own favorite. Uh, basic sour ratio in our head that we can move up or down on depending on what the mood you know what mood strikes us or what the you know the additions we have to it are and i also i personally have a basic uh salt you know at the bar we we have a uh, our standard salt solution is uh 20 grams of salt in 100 milliliters of water dissolve it put it into standard kind of american not you know not imperial drops but a standard american <laughs> eyedroppers and uh and, you know, uh, depending on the drink, uh, you know, most citrus drinks get a drop or two, depending mm. on uh, how much we want. Like for me, a daiquiri is a one drop drink usually. Yeah. And uh, most of our tequila drinks are two drop mm-hmm. drinks uh, because people like a little bit more of an edge on their tequila drinks. So I think, I think there's, you know, once you start incorporating something like salt into your um, into the routine of bartending, um, you're going to find kind of go to. Uh, go-to ratios that you like. I mean, Tony takes it another step further because, you know, every time I've worked with him, he really enjoys uh, fine-tuning. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's definitely something we do just because it's, it's the, you know, being able to replicate these things over and over again uh, that I think is important because there's nothing worse, I suppose, than going to a cocktail bar and having, you know, the same drink that you really love but it comes out in different variations each time so we try and narrow that band down as much as possible by using some of the micro pipettes and equipment like that uh just because it makes it you know super accurate and using kind of super accurate scales and, and things like that yeah and it, you know, tony by the way for those of you that don't haven't had a chance to go to uh 69 cobra grow uh, is he's the master of busting all this equipment out behind the scenes, but when you show up at the bar, it's like you know a tranny band and a honky tonk piano, and so there's like there is no um, at least the you know three times or what that I've been to London and hung out basically exclusively at Six Nine Cobra Grill uh, <laughs> is uh, you know you you wouldn't um, know from being there that you're dealing with someone who is taking such precise care of their drinks until you taste the cocktails, which are fantastic. And so it was one of the first places where I really uh, saw in practice that you can have, uh, you know, a real palace of, co- of to the cocktail, but in a completely friendly atmosphere, which is, you know, something that hasn't really been replicated too often. Mm. I, think. I think that was, you know, it was always a consideration and always something that we wanted to do because I think, <clears throat> the minute you kind of have the bartenders talking about, um, you know, the science of it, it can be pretty boring. You know, yeah. it, you know, the atmosphere needs to be conducive to, you know, I want to talk to you. Let's have a conversation. Or you know, there's there's the distraction. You kind of go there to get distracted. You know, if there's, yeah, there's obviously people that want to know more, and that's you know that's open as well. But our focus is to run a bar that is enjoyable and is fun and has you know. Uh, it's about hosting. It's about bartending. It's not about kind of geeking out. Right. I mean, at Booker and Dax, which is, you know, the bar that, you know, I'm running now um, with Tristan, uh, the, you know, I think we really fell into that trap early on, even though I knew I didn't want to fall into that trap. A lot of the tech, you know, the techniques were so new to the crew <laughs> that they were just excited about it. I think there was a little, there was quite a bit at the beginning, too much talk maybe to the customers 
about it, and we really kind of, I think, uh, trying to ratchet that back because it's really just about the drink. But what you do as well is a lot of fun. I mean, kind of watching you last night in the excellent bar that you were, um, <clears throat> was the, you know, it's fun to watch you kind of do, I think, because that's a point of interest. I think, you know, some of the things we do aren't that interesting. Like micro pipettes aren't interesting to watch, but Except watching you. <laughs> But watching you kind of carbonate stuff and, and you know, use the liquid nitrogen and, and, uh, and all of those things is a visual, exciting thing to actually to watch. I think that brings a whole heap of stuff to, to you know, uh, to the table. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting question. I just want to make you know, you want to make sure that, that nothing that you're using is a gimmick and that it doesn't become, which I thought I don't think we do. Like, so, for instance, you know, at Booker and Dax, we're very, uh, we're very low on garnish. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of. At this point, specifically, it's not that I can't make a bunch of crazy garnishes. It's just you know, there's talk of Pringles last night, wasn't it? Oh my god, that's a great garnish. <laughs> I, I hope that makes it in the Bodega Week. Our Pringle, our Pringle garnish, and of course, you know, Brits don't know what a Pringle is, so we had to go through a long explanation of what a <laughs> Pringle is to Tony. Pringles, you know, Pringles are kind of a miracle. Pringles uh, was like one of the biggest R and D development budgets on a food product of all time, and mm-hmm. it took like 20 years to pay back. Wow. And Pringles finally started making money like 20 years after they. Did it because of the amazing like investment in potato chip molds that they made for the Pringles and the can development and all that crazy crazy stuff. All right, so another cocktail question from Kevin. Yeah, in North. Let's take a quick break first. Oh, quick break. Oh, all right. We're going to a quick miracle break. Call back with seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Cooking issues. Speak pimping, baby. What's the reason? I'm a pimp in every sense of the word. Better trust and believe them. In the cut where I keep them. Till I need it. Till I need to be the guts. Then it's beep beep. Then I'm picking them up. Let them play with the truck. Many chicks want to put chicken fists in cup. Divorce them and split his bucks. Just because you got good. I'm a break brand so you can be living it up. Did I pass with nothing? Y'all be fronting. Me give my heart to a woman. Not for nothing. Never happen. I'll be forever macking. Heart cold and assassins. I got no passion. I got no patience. And I hate waiting. Choke. And let's ride. Pimping. We'd be Costco-sized pimping up in NYC, baby. I wonder where Jay-Z thinks of Dashi. I'm sure he doesn't want Dashi. <laughs> Probably doesn't want not. Dashi or Bushi. <laughs> that was like the best song. We might have to play that thing again. Love that stuff. Uh, okay, today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantries, uh, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients, but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? Modernist Pantry has a solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook and enthusiast, and most cost only around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH buffers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world, Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Modernist Pantry carries Pure Coat B790, a modified cornstarch that can be used to create films, glasses, and fruit leathers. Glasses. Glasses. 
Uh, not that kind of glass, Tony. Uh, fans of cooking issues that place an order of $25 or more before next week's show will get a free package of Pure Coat to play with. Simply use the promo code CI76 when placing your order online at modernistpantry.com. Visit modernistpantry.com today for all of your modernist cooking needs. I've never used, um, I've used uh, Crisp Coat, but I've never used Pure Coat. Crisp Coat is like a batter uh, coating. These things, like these film formers they use for things when you're frying, they form a film so that grease theoretically can't penetrate and they also help with batter adhesion uh and you know things like this you usually use in like uh so like in flour you use like a 10 percent by weight to fry things uh i haven't used it in a long time because my fry coating is good enough i don't need any crisp coat or pew coat in my i'm just kidding i'm just kidding it's all good stuff uh especially if you're going to do something like um Oh, like uh, tempura stuff. But this stuff sounds like it's not actually used for, for that. It's used more to do uh, – to cast like, like glasses and fruits and sheets of uh, starch. I'm sure it's great stuff. I just don't have that much experience with it. Okay. Second cocktail question is on Jellan ice cubes. Um, I'm trying to find it. Okay. I know that you've made gel and ice cubes before. I'm intrigued by the concept of a non-melting ice cube, especially if it could be a better heat retention than a standard ice. Plus, it would be cool to have an edible cocktail within a cocktail. My question is, have you had any success getting the gel to stay clear when frozen? Maybe a different hydrocolloid combination would work. No, it will, it will not stay clear. It just won't stay clear. I've not tried that, actually. Yeah, it won't stay I've clear. I've worked with melicellulose uh, before. Yeah. And we it, made like absinthe ice cubes and put them on the spoon and then lit them and then they melt, melted. After they cool, yeah, yeah, but and they clear when they're when they melt, but they're when they're solid, they're white. Yeah, especially with absinthe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, gelant. Here's the thing: when you use uh, a- any sort of uh, hydro for uh, like to lock in water that's frozen for cooling, you're never going to get quite the cooling power. I mean, you'll get theoretically the cooling power, but. What happens is when you're chilling with ice, the outside layer of the ice melts. That water instantly goes into your cocktail, chills and dilutes. When you've locked the water into a hydrocolloid, uh, you have an uh, – uh, believe it or not, water is a better insulator than ice. So, so you inhibit the chilling effect of the ice that's on the inside of the cube as it goes. So it will keep a drink cool, but it's never going to be as effective as ice. Ice is a damn effective chilling agent. Uh, what I did do uh, recently, because they were quite small, I have to go on Ellen. The Ellen uh, have to. I'm going to. El- I'm going to be on Ellen DeGeneres uh, <laughs> later this week for her St. Patty's Day cocktail, and uh, they didn't want any of the drinks that we actually had on our menu. I don't think. I guess I don't know. Not a fan. I don't know. But uh, they. Uh, <laughs> so there's all these uh, kind of. I'm doing a bunch of wacky stuff. So if you watch, it's not stuff that you'd actually see at the bar. But one of the things I'm doing is. Uh, breaking apart raspberries with liquid nitrogen and then using the raspberry beads the, as basically uh, ice cube BBs to shake a drink, to chill a drink that's already been diluted. Oh. And it chills it down. And then, you know, you get the raspberries and you drink it with a straw and you suck them up like, you know, and like, you know in your mouth. It's like... <laughs> like that, pretty much. So stuff like that. So you can shake with uh, frozen fruit. <clears throat> my, one of my favorite techniques... Does that work with limes as well? I don't know. Probably. Yeah. Little lime pips. Yeah. yeah. Grapefruit works. Oh. I haven't tried lime because the lime, the vesicles are so small. Uh, I mean, you know, one of my favorite – it's not going to give you a cocktail within a cocktail, but one of my favorite things to do, especially at home if you don't have a lot of gear, is, uh, to f- is when you're using non, uh, non-concentrated mixers like grapefruit juice or apple juice, freeze them solid like ice cubes and then shake them uh, instead of with ice because they break into a slush 
because you know juice doesn't freeze as hard. Yeah. So they break into a slush in the tins, and then uh, and it gets really freaking cold, and your dilution's always right because you just shake it till the whole son of a bitch turns to a slush. You know what I mean? No, I mean. Yep. Uh, okay. So let me see. I'm, I gotta now. I gotta try and split between just like Tony and I having a a, a conversation and uh, and some of these questions because you guys have a, a lot of questions in. Uh, let me go uh, to. Uh, let me see. Oh, here's a here's a here's a, here's a good one. Okay, uh, Stephen Garrett from Wellington, New Zealand. You ever been to New Zealand? I've not yet. I'd love to go. Yeah, yeah. Because you're a Xena Warrior Princess fan. Uh, more Lord of the Rings, I think. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. See, I'm uh, like Lord of the Rings. Like, I never really. I saw like one or two of them, but you know, I, like you know, Xena like hit me right at the right time. <laughs> like you know, Xena. Uh, there's a question that uh, you missed last week about hearts and cooking. I'd love to hear a little about tartare of heart. You ever had heart tartare? I've never actually had it. No, I've not either. But I'm sure it's good. I mean, one of the problems with organ meats is they have to be really fresh because of the way that they're processed and cut out, they tend to spoil quickly because they're exposed to more bacteria than whole muscle cuts, right? I mean, that's just a kind of a fact of life. Mm. Hearts probably are okay because they are a big whole muscle cut. You just wash off the outside or whatever, trim it. Uh, I've never actually had uh, um, heart tartare, but I did look up. Uh, basically, most of the recipes I found online trace back to a friend of mine, Chris Constantino, who is known for his cooking of uh, you know awful, meaning awful, not awful, you know, awful. There you go. Uh, and he has a beef heart uh, tartare Putinesca style. That means uh, torn up hearts in the style of horrors, right? Yeah, it's kind of that translation. Yeah, yeah. It's not far off. Yeah, horse style heart, heart <laughs> chop. Anyway. Uh, I can kind of see where you're going with it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so uh, yeah, he has a recipe. It's very easy uh, to find, and it looks interesting. But I've not had. It. I'm sure it's good. Kind of chewy. I mean, are you a meat tartare kind of a guy, Tony? Oh, uh, I can be. Although I've not had that, but I'm kind of partial to yeah. beef tartare. Yeah, right. A little yeah. acid, a little. Mm-hmm. You know, he has some interesting stuff. And so just look up. Uh, you know, look up his uh, thing. Also, following up on the Soda Stream to carbonate alcohol. Soda Stream. I don't know if they have that in the UK. Soda Stream. Yeah, we do. Yeah, it's the home carbonator. Uh, I, you know, I've recommended for a while adding an extra tube to it so that the tube can dip down low enough so that you can get it into alcohol and carbonate it without getting foam over, basically. Yeah. Uh, so following up on the Soda Stream to carbonate alcohol, it works. Uh, extending the tube to the bottom of the bottle, but it uses a lot of gas. Uh, to make wine sparkly, you have to carbonate, vent, carbonate, vent, and carbonate, and let it sit pressurized for a good few minutes, and it has to be almost ice cold. Everything you've said is true, but that's the only damned way to carbonate something properly. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, if you come to the bar and you see us carbonate, we're, we'll carbonate four or five, th- you know, between three and five times on any of our drinks um, just to get rid of all of the little nucleation sites that are in it so that we get a nice stable bubble and we have it more than ice cold. In fact, one of the big things I have to beat out of uh, the bartender's heads is to put uh, the, our carbonated drinks on ice because ice is only at zero, right? and our carbonated drinks are at like minus eight. So you know when they when they're putting it uh, when they're putting it on uh, on ice, they're warming it. <laughs> you know, so it's like I'm like I'm like don't do, don't do, do that. Do you add water to the? Uh, mix before you carbonate it yeah. with, with the alcohol because a lot of the, the, I've tasted alcohol that's been made sparkling and the flavour is very very odd. Yeah, so we head. like I once did uh, <clears throat> bottle bottle strength carbonation, and if you're going to carbonate something at bottle strength, it has to be absurdly cold, like minus eighteen C. Mm-hmm. You know, um, otherwise the perception of alcohol is just crazy. If you get it down to a temperature where, like, let's say you're going to let's just use straight gin 
yeah. right? If you're going to get it down to a temperature where it's like syrupy in the freezer, then and you carbonate it, it's quite enjoyable. But as it starts to warm up even a little bit, it's to me kind of unpleasant. And then if you add anything like a sugar or an acid to it for flavor, yeah. it, it just goes way out of balance. Mm-hmm. And I think the main uh, problem that people do <clears throat> when they uh, when they're carbonating liquor is uh, they serve it at too high proof. So you know if you're if you're um, serving, uh, you know a stirred cocktail is going to be probably somewhere in the area of like seventeen, eighteen percent, and a, a shaken cocktail. I have to go do the math again, but a shaken cocktail is going to be somewhere down closer to like fourteen, fifteen percent. But like a, a carbonated cocktail should really be all the way down at like twelve. You know, yeah, right. Well. So, yeah. yeah you know, I so mean, if you look at the proportions of uh, classic cocktails, there about that. We used a uh, if you've seen that machine, the alkalizer. That measures all the kind of uh, bricks, but also the kind of ABV. Oh, so we were shaking. You have one? Well, we borrowed one. They're very expensive, but we borrowed one off a, uh, a company. What's like it called? Anton Parr Alkalizer. Is it awesome? It's it really is awesome because you you can check all the um, uh, you know the bricks percentages, but also the ABVs. Uh, and we were talking to Harold about the the the, the, the perfect parameters of where flavour will hit and where you taste the best. Uh, and it was between, uh, I think, between 14 and 19. So within those kind of, you know, parameters, you've got like a, uh, you know, the most enhanced um, amount of flavor right. in a we, cocktail. When you carbonate, that punches stuff up, which is why you have to drop the... I always drop the alcohol level in a carbonated drink. Yeah, but I mean, with the Tom Collins, you'd add slightly more sugar, and that kind of floats the flavor a little bit more anyway, so... Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting problem, but most of the time, and I also remember when I first started carbonating, I would basically, I would just shake a drink and then carbonate it. And those are too alcoholic and end up tasting too syrupy and they fatigue your palate quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, and they just taste a little bit off, like the acid balance goes off a little bit and you just add some, like lighten it a little bit with water. You know, not a boatload, but you lighten it a little bit with water, and the whole thing just becomes more pleasant. As yeah. long as you keep the bubble level at you know, the same. Are you gassing with um, with uh, come dark side? Are you using other gases too? Uh, I have the ability to do a nitrous CO two mix. Yeah, uh, and when I make uh, water. I use nitrous CO2 because I want to soften the bubbles a little bit. I want to have the same liveliness, but I want to soften the bubbles, and yeah. nitrous is going to soften it. Adds a little bit of sweetness and some creaminess, but really it just softens up that bubble. Um, but yeah, because I always find that the CO2 can actually make things more acidic, uh, and it kind of registers as that. Yeah, it. it well, I mean, you know, that like the the studies show that eventually it is your sour uh, taste receptors that are responding to what an enzyme is doing to the CO2 or the way the CO2 affects a particular enzyme pathway on your tongue. So it is related to acidity and it does actually produce acid, you know, carbonic acid, you know what I mean? Um, But I think what carbonating a drink does um, is really complicated. You know, um, I find that uh, if you taste a drink flat that you want carbonated it should taste a little too weak and a little low in acid and also I like it a little low in sugar because something that tastes balanced as a sipping drink like it just it gets like syrupy and almost soda like for me and I don't want like a soda like flavor in my cocktail you know what I mean 
I suppose you've also, because um, there, there were loads of tests, of it. I think it was Bernard Lahousse from Food Pairing did loads of tests for, on the aroma on top of cocktails that had been carbonated. And the results were so, so varied and all over the place, just because, you know, what you're adding to um, the um, mix is a whole of a lot of aroma, because that CO2 is carrying and, and almost stripping the flavour into aroma and then taking it to the top of the drink. So you, you've got a whole other kind of spectrum to look at uh, rather than just flavour I mean because if you taste a Manhattan there is some aroma but there's not as much um, so that kind of whole aroma spectrum kind of makes <laughs> that is a drill outside isn't it uh, it's a jackhammer yeah. I believe yeah. um, welcome uh, to Roberta's <laughs> well, uh, well we'll kind of change your perception of the drink as well and that can vary quite a yeah, lot yeah and uh, Manhattan is one that you're the your entire perception has changed, and I think for the worse. I detest carbonated Manhattans. I don't like them at all. They're all I think they're hideous. In fact, I use that as the demo of when carbonation goes bad. The other thing is, I think it's it's you can make very excellent carbonated rum drinks, but I think it's also very easy to go wrong with a carbonated rum drink. You know, they can taste. Uh, they go from being a delicious drink to almost fake tasting. There are great carbonated rum drinks. I've had other people's good carbonated rum drinks. I've made carbonated rum drinks that I also like, but it's like it's a difficult thing, I think, to do. You have to be spot on with your mix, I think, to carbonate uh, a rum drink properly. Gin carbonates like nobody's business. Like almost any gin drink can be made carbonated <laughs> and it tastes delicious uh, or can be made to taste uh, uh, delicious. Um, but it's difficult. Like it's difficult to do a carbonated tea beverage because the tannins get blown out. You know what I mean? Like they they are, are amped up. Is what I mean. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And so it can be it can be uh, difficult. All right, Jack. Should we go to one more commercial break? Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Cooking issues. Here with Tony Camilliaro. Does, does everyone in England pronounce your name wrong? Is that why you always go by Tony C? Yes. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, but I'm close enough, right? You are close enough, yeah. yeah. I've had some horrendous uh, versions. I mean, it's quite funny whenever the post comes in, 
I think we've collected about 400 different spellings so far of my name. Yeah. Just at the bar, yeah. So what's your what's your favorite what's your favorite mispronunciation? Well, there was one with W's and Z's in which I, you know, it was, How the hell do you get that? I have no idea. It's just one of those kind of mysterious I mean, the, the one you must most get all the time is Conigliaro. Mhm. Because that's like a baseball player that actually went by that here in the U.S. Yeah, for the uh, Boston Red Sox. Yeah, yeah, he, and he yeah. was Conigliaro, yeah. not Conigliaro. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, so he goes by Tony Sim. Of course, you know, in England you are dealing with a country where they, they you know, they say spag ball when they're talking about – what is spag ball anyway? That's spaghetti bolognese? Uh, yeah, spaghetti bolognese. Yeah, spag La ball. bolognese. Spag ball. Tony, by the way uh, – True to his uh, Italian name is, uh, what, half Sicilian? Half Sicilian, yeah. My father's from Sicily. You speak normal Italian or Sicilian or both? Uh, I speak normal Italian. Uh, Sicilian's like a complete different language that we didn't really learn. Uh, it's, it's kind of only spoken by Sicilian Sicilians. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, the, the old word filters through, I think, but it's not as a, as a whole, I don't know. Yeah. Were, were, were your uh, family actually rabbit keepers back in the day? I have no idea, but I do know that that name comes from one village, uh, and most kind of you know people that have that name, you know, have a line of heritage going back to a little village called Carini outside of Palermo in Sicily. Yeah, mm. nice. Never been to Sicily. Someday. Oh, it's lovely. Someday I'll get to go. And by the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and apologize in advance to anyone whose questions I do not get to today. Uh, because, uh, you know, Tony's not here every day. In fact, he's never been here before. And so uh, I'm going to have a conversation with him somewhat. But if you have any questions for Tony, you still have a little bit of time to call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. All right. Uh, quick one. Uh, just a recommendation someone has in. Tom Fisher from Lansdowne, PA, longtime uh, listener. Uh, I'm looking to get a chamber vacuum sealer in the next month. And I've narrowed things down to the VacMaster VP112 or the VP215. I favor the VP215 for the faster vacuum times, oil-based pump and choir operation. But it is huge, heavy, and $300 more. Is there any benefit to the home cook in getting the more expensive unit? But look, both of these units are kind of in the uh, sub-$1,000 chamber vacuum machine range. Um, I have had nothing but bad luck with... Um, any vacuum machine that doesn't have an oil-based pump, the vacuum pump is just not strong enough. Now, that said, is it going to seal a steak? Yeah. You know what I mean? It will. Yeah. Uh, if you're out there to do, uh, like, you know, some of the hardcore, uh, like, flash infusions, um, you know, if you're looking to do that kind of work with it, um, you need a damn good vacuum. Man. Yeah. Oil-based. Uh, yeah. And so uh, the one that, that advertised itself as an oil-based pump uh, I mean, but the problem with that unit, I looked it up, is that it's like just in the middle. I mean, you can get a real good one from Mini Pack for like fifteen hundred with a real Bush vacuum pump in it, and this one's in the eight hundred dollar range. I know the one I just recommended is twice the price, but I have this problem. I have a, a strange genetic disorder that once I get over a certain price, I'm like, God damn it, I need the real one. You know what I mean? It's like if it was like two hundred bucks, then I would just go ahead and get the one that was almost as good. But as soon as it's like eight hundred bucks, I'm like, oh hell, I need the real one. You know what I mean? You know what I mean, Tony? Right? I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, but then you know, sometimes you do pay for for you know the amount of vac machines we've got for over the years is, is phenomenal. And it was only until we discovered multivac uh, and we spent a bit of money on it that it's actually last. And we we put it through its paces, and we, you know, we. we we don't just use it for the, with the sous vide bags. We're sucking stuff out and, and, and blah blah blah. And some of the others just get clogged up and just 
bruised, battered and, and destroyed because of that. But the multi-vac, you clean out, then you can start all over again. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so the main commercial br- uh, brands that are available here in the U.S., like the multi-vac, the mini-pack, the uh, Koch, all of these, they all use uh, this German vacuum pump called the Bush pump. And the vast majority of the price of the vacuum machine is determined by the cost of that pump. Bush pumps are just expensive, but they have some serious cojones on them. And they, like Tony said, you know, you run those suckers and they go. And then they get uh, gummed up because you're going to vacuum water into them, not directly, but in the form of vapor. It's going to contaminate it. And you just run those suckers and clean them out, and then they're good as new again. So, you know, I don't know if the lesser vacuum pump, even if it's an oil-based pump, I mean, when it's brand new, it'll get down to the same vacuum levels as the Bush. But the Bush is like the Timex of, uh, of uh, you know, vacuum pumps. That sucker just takes a lick and it keeps on ticking. <laughs> there's a reason why all of the big companies use it. And there's no way that a sub $1,000 chamber vacuum machine is going to have a Bush pump in it, right? And so what they're doing, is, and the rest of it, I mean, programming is great. Nice seal bars. It's all fantastic. It's all great. Uh, but... Uh, what you're paying for with the more money is the awesome vacuum pump. Um, you know, the, the rest of it, you know, is, you know, I'm sure it won't crush under its own vacuum. You know what I mean? But, uh, <clears throat> so I would definitely go for it for occasional use. I would get the oil-based one. Uh, you're going to be, I think, less than satisfied with one that's not, uh, not oil-based. You could, if you're like me, rip the vacuum pump out of the other one and install a real oil-based pump as a separate thing. But now you're talking about spending extra money, time, and more space on your counter. Have you used a gastrovac? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, okay, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the gastrovac because um, you know theoretically it's meant to do kind of vacuum um, vacuum frying. So it's built around a vacuum fryer, but uh, its vacuum pump is weak. You know, and compare now you can yeah. hook the gastrovac up to the vacuum pump in a multivac, mm-hmm. set the programming to be right, and you'd be damn good. The other thing is, is that um, the gastrovac, by the way, is a, is a modified pressure cooker with an acrylic lid, and it goes to a vacuum pump, and it lowers the pressure on the inside, so you could do infusions in oil or frying stuff like that. But the vacuum pump is just not that good, and that vacuum pump has no way to exhaust the water very well that you're sucking into it so it gets bogged down very quickly yeah. it needs a cold trap so you know I for Wiley once I did a test where I ran a cold, I ran a, a, a line I, I bypassed their vacuum went directly into my vacuum pump because I, I use oil based refrigerator vacuum pumps as just like walk around vacuum pumps uh, you know the ones that refrigeration technique technicians use because uh, they're pretty cheap and you can fill the oil really quickly they're easy to get to uh, and, uh, and used a liquid nitrogen cold trap and then I got it to work but as as comes from the factory, I don't. I, and even when using it as infusion, I don't see why you wouldn't just use your vacuum machine. I mean, what do you, do you have a good use for it? Yeah, I mean, we found that, that we just, just even with no heat, just kind of infusing the cook, cook like almost cold infusing the the the, uh, the cordials and stuff like that. But why but not just use your chamber vac? Just because it's bigger. I think that's the only oh, reason. Yeah, because uh-huh. you can do like kind of two two to, you know two to four liters in there rather than. Kind of having to keep putting things in and out and kind of closing it. Well, you know, you know, like uh, what what you should do. I did once is just uh, take and build a uh, like a Lexan, uh, <clears throat> a Lexan lid for like a giant stock pot, and then you could just go ape ape shit, hook it up to a vacuum machine, and, uh, uh-huh. and just go. Okay. Yeah, I did that once for for Wiley, like way back in the day, <laughs> before anyone had anything, and I've done it occasionally for myself when I'm like. Uh, 
I use the Gastrovac pot, actually, uh, pot when I'm doing uh, plaster casting because I'll, <laughs> I'll use it to de-aerate uh, plaster. But you could probably go for that and buy like the large um, basically de-aerators for model casting people because plaster shops use them and plastics shops use them to de-aerate resins and plaster before they pour them into molds. And they have some big pots. And since your food's not going to be directly in it, it's going to be inside of another container in there. Yeah. Who cares? You know, like what it's made out of. I think they're made out of probably like you know plastic and aluminum or something like that. But I mean, who, who cares? You know what I mean? The food's not going to touch it. And then just make sure you got a good enough vacuum pump on it. All right. Here, oh, our our pizza is showing up. Awesome. So uh, we got another. We you know we have a, we have a, some fans in Bergen, Norway, which I enjoy. Wow! Yeah, Norway. Out of Norway. Yeah, I have. I, have I, Jack? Have I already told my one Swedish joke on the air? Uh, I don't think so. No. No. Maybe I just want to hear it again, though. Oh, you want to hear it again? I only have one Swedish joke, and I use it to taunt Nils, my you know longtime coworker and, and good friend, who's now back with Marcus Samuelson running all of his uh, restaurant stuff. So, uh, and only Swedes and Norwegians will get this one. <laughs> uh, hey, Tony, what's uh, what's a Swede? Uh, a root vegetable? No, no, that's only in England. What, what's, what's, okay, what's a Swedish person? What's a Swedish person? I, I don't know. You don't know? A Norwegian without the oil money. Boom! <laughs> yeah. Studio audience like that one. <laughs> yeah, Norwegians love that one. Anyway, okay. Hopefully, I haven't already told that one too many times on the radio. But you know, if, if you have a, if you have a like a, a Sweden Norway joke, you got to pull it out every once in a while. I have no pony in that race, so it, like I can say whatever I want. Okay. Uh, anyway, Arnie Skog from uh, from uh, Arnie Skog Olsen from Bergen, Norway, writes in and says, "Big fan of the radio show. Uh, highlight of his week. I keep up the good work. You know, I hope you have a better week than having this be the highlight." Um, uh, I'm, a- I'm actually your second listener from Bergen, Norway. However, I'm writing you from Brooklyn as I'm here for a few days. I might even go to see you at Roberta's this Tuesday. I don't know if he's in the audience because uh, I don't know what he looks like. Uh, audience. I-, I don't know if he's eating pizza out the back is what I mean. <laughs> is Indy Jesus on today, by the way? I don't think so. He, may- he switched off Tuesdays? I saw him here the other other yeah, day on a Sunday. Sunday yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, anyway. Uh, New York City is great. I went with a colleague of mine. We're art critics to Booker and Dax, our bar. Uh, I'm sorry I missed you. Uh, we loved it, especially the gin and juice. Gin and juice is a good drink. Oh, really good drink. I like that drink. Uh, we went back a couple days later to have awesome whole pork butt noisters at Momofuku Sam Bar next door. Awesome. A couple questions. Where can I get calcium hydroxide like pickling lime in New York City? For some reason, it's impossible to get uh, in Norway, eBay works, but shipping is really expensive, and I'm here now. So, by the way, I made rye tortillas, which is I have a recipe for on my blog, using sodium carbonate made by heating sodium bicarbonate, which worked, but the carbonate had no, uh, not such agreeable flavor to my palate. Still awesome. Thanks for the Nixtamal post on your blog from way back in the day. Yes, uh, go to, to get that stuff, go to Kalustian's, uh, 123rd Street and Lex between 28th and 29th Street. Fantastic place for all your general weird spice needs. Good place, right? They have it, or at least they should have it. If they don't have it, it goes under a bunch of different names. Slaked lime, uh, calcium hydroxide, pickling lime. If you want to get the Thai version of lime paste in red or white, go to Bangkok Grocery on 104 Moscow. Moscow is in uh, kind of Little Italy Chinatown area, uh, over by where the Five Points District used to be. But call them ahead because sometimes they're out. If you want actual cal from Mexico, go to El Tepeyac Grocery on Lexington Avenue and like 103rd Street. And while you're there, stop by Kitchen Arts and Letter, the greatest cookbook store in the United States. Um, Anyway, yeah. Uh, Also, uh, an interesting question in. 
Same, same, same color. On uh, you know, lutefisk. Have you ever had it? Lutefisk. Lutefisk. It's the fi- it's the fish that it's like you take stockfish, uh, which is you know the one that's air dried without the salt, and then you soak it in lye, and or you rehydrate it a little bit, then you soak it in lye, then you wash the lye out, and it turns all gelatinous and funky. Not had that. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of like a well known thing that everyone who's not from there doesn't like. It's kind of like a slippery. I haven't actually had it, but uh, uh, Harold McGee, uh, our mutual friend Harold McGee, who's now in China, uh, 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 you know. Introduced me to a recipe for lye curing eggs really quickly, and so Nils and I did a, a, a fake lutefisk where the egg was lutefisk flavored and the fish was just kind of cured regular fish. It was good. Uh, I liked it. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> so this is for a weird dish. Wondering whether you could do it. Long introduction to this that he calls lute, which means like lie, right? So lutefisk is like lie fish, and I can't pronounce the second part of it, but lute pinnikjat. I don't know. Uh, so this uh, idea was proposed by a friend of mine. So uh, he goes on to describe lutefisk, a very old traditional Norwegian dish made from dry cod with lye. Uh, but there's this other dish that is really famous there called pinnikjot, which I can't pronounce, which is the whole side of lamb, salted and dried, uh, sometimes smoked, cut along the ribs to make sticks of meat, rehydrated for 24 hours to take the salt out, and then steamed until the, salt, uh, until the meat falls off the bone. This guy really likes it. So what he's wondering is, uh, and his Italian friend came up with this idea, is can you make that stick meat with a lye solution same way that you do lutefisk? Uh, and basically he's wondering what happens to the fat. Will it turn to soap? Will it saponify with the calcium uh, hydroxide or with lye or with other uh, alkaline? Uh, and uh, yes, I think it will. Yes, but the question is like how how long, how long? I mean, I've tested it with chicken and like a little bit of chicken, and I've boiled chicken with uh, calcium hydroxide, and it tastes good in small amounts. But if you it, it, look, apparently, I did some research, and in Finland, uh, if you if you overcure uh, the lutefisk uh, there, they have a word for it called uh, soap fish because you saponified the fats. And if you think about it, the cod that you're using or whatever ling or whatever you're using in Norway to make your lutefisk is a very lean fish, and so there's very little fat to saponify in that fish, and so you typically don't do it on really kind of oily oily fish. Uh, so I would be wary. Uh, I would use very lean cuts of uh, meat, and uh, I would not necessarily soak it in as high a solution or for as long. But you will get the tenderizing effect. Look, alkaline tenderization is something that's used in China, for instance, with uh, alkaline solutions in meat to get really soft kind of meat textures in beef that's kind of cut thin, marinated uh, in like a baking soda solution or a lye solution, not lye, but, uh, alkaline solution, and then cooked. And the, the, you know, the, the basic principle is, is that... <clears throat> That the the uh, the alkaline solution weakens the protein bonds and so therefore makes it um, a softer, yep. right? Uh, and so it'd be interesting to try a little bit of saponification is uh, good and like lends some of the characteristic flavor to things like tortillas, but a lot of saponification equals soap, and so uh, it wouldn't necessarily be uh, good. But anyway. Uh, Arnie, I, I hope you try it. I hope you stop by Roberta's. Uh, they wanted some recommendations, or someone else actually wanted some recommendations of places to eat. But, uh, Jack, do we have another show coming on the yeah, air? Yeah, we, thir- we got to wrap it up right now. Oh, all right. Listen, Sorry. Tony, thanks for coming in. Pleasure. Uh, Sorry, anyone, who's, anyone who's in London, if you don't go to one of Tony C's bars, uh, you are a fool. <laughs> Cooking issues. <laughs> Fish is
Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. You got my head all twisted And I just can't get it straight Vicious, vicious box